0: Welcome everyone to the Genetic Engineering and Society Center's weekly seminar, The Colloquium. We are very excited to be bringing you Dr. Riley Fong from the University of Arizona. Uh, Before we have one of our AgBioFuse students, Jill Ferguson, introduce her. I just want to remind everyone, this is our last colloquium of the semester and we'll get started back up in January. uh, And our first colloquium will be a welcome back lunch where we, will be in person and hearing about your winter break. Uh, And we also are very excited that for next semester's colloquium where it's predominantly gonna be in person and we will have uh, three virtual speakers. So we will be sending out our list of speakers for next semester pretty soon, just to let you know that. Um, And also if there are any announcements or updates, um, please raise your hand or unmute yourself. And I will just give a very quick reminder that on Friday, December eighth, we're going to have also our last uh, workshop series for the professional development workshop. Uh, and that is going to be on managing graduate research. It's going to be a panel talking about different resources and tools for your for managing graduate resources. Um, and that is going to be December eighth, nine thirty to eleven thirty uh, at the Tally Union. So all students from, the Global One Health Academy, Genetic and uh, Genomics Academy, and AgBioFuse graduate students are invited to join us. Great, and if I know people are still entering. Uh, I think if we don't have any other updates and announcements, I'd like to ask Jill if she can unmute herself
1: and introduce our speaker for this week. Absolutely. It is my pleasure to welcome and introduce Riley Taitingfeng. Uh, Riley is a Luce Foundation postdoctoral scholar at the Native Nations Institute of the Udall Center at the University of Arizona. She works on issues of environmental justice, indigenous self-determination, Emerging Technologies, and Community Engagement. Uh, She completed her PhD in communication at the University of California, San Diego, where her project focused on indigenous governance of genetic engineering technologies known as gene drives. This work is actually how I first encountered Riley um, through an FNIH online webinar on gene drives and community engagement. It was it was definitely memorable, and I highly recommend it to anyone that works in gene drives or engagement. Um, Riley is currently working on the implementation of CARE principles of Indigenous data governance within data repositories. As a Chamorro researcher, Riley is committed to building cross-movement solidarity among Indigenous communities from Oceania to Turtle Island. And so please join me in welcoming Riley.
2: Amazing. Thank you, Jill. All right. Get my slides up here for you all. How's that look? Looks good. Excellent. Okay. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, I want to start by extending a big Sisuus Maase or thank you to Dr. Baltigar, Dr. Rodriguez Ford, and Jill Ferguson for the invitation to join you all uh, for this colloquium today. The title of my talk is From Containment to Connectivity, An Oceanic Approach to Gene Drive Governance. Before I launch into things, I'll take a quick moment to kind of introduce myself for you all and ground you in my theoretical approach to my work. Then I'll share um, throughout this talk, pieces of my dissertation research, which focus on indigenous governance of gene drives and in particular proposals to test and use these technologies on islands. Okay, first to situate myself a bit so you know who I am and how I come to the work that I do. Um, On this slide are some of my relations, past and present, so just basically people and places that are important to me, uh, my parents, my grandparents, my Manyatlu, or my friends in Guam. And so I am Chamorro on my father's side. I am also of mixed European descent on my mother's side. And for those who do not know, Chamorros are the indigenous peoples of the Mariana Islands in Micronesia, including the island of Guam or Guam, where much of my family comes from. And I am a diasporic Chamorro, which means I live away from my home islands. And this is actually the case for many Chamorros because we are the most geographically dispersed Pacific Islanders in the United States. And you can pretty much find us everywhere, um, especially in places with a big military infrastructure. Because of the different ways US militarism has really uh, shaped patterns of outmigration from our home islands and, and displacement from our home islands as well. But you can also find us everywhere because we are a voyaging people who have always been on the move. Um, our ancestors traversed some three-fourths of the southern hemisphere using just traditional methods. So, um, you know, our movements and migrations are not only shaped by militarism, but also by the deep expertise that we steward about the ocean. I also wanna mention that for me, um, being diasporic tomorrow means that I carry responsibilities to my home islands wherever I go. Um, For me, this means being really attuned to the historic and ongoing impacts of settler colonialism and militarism uh, on our home islands and also dreaming and organizing futures beyond those structures. It also means understanding my position as a settler on the lands of other indigenous peoples in the places that our communities put down our diasporic roots. Uh, For example, right now, I'm calling in from my home in San Diego, where I live and work on the unceded uh, territories of the Kumeyaay Nation, the really big Chamorro community here in San Diego. And so organizing for solidarity across our different indigenous nation building projects is really important to me and is something that I also um, get to do a lot in my postdoc with the Native Nations Institute. Okay, so now that, um, you know, a little bit about who I am, I want to tell you about some of the theoretical approaches I take to my work. So as I kind of try to, you know, live my values and my responsibilities through my work, I'm really fortunate to draw on scholars from fields like Native and Pacific cultural studies, uh, from Indigenous studies, Indigenous science studies, feminist science studies, for example. And so here are some of my greatest inspirations on the slide. For example, the late Tongan and Fijian writer Apelehaofa asserted that as Pacific peoples, we come from a great sea of islands. And he was really a powerful voice in sort of challenging notions of smallness that get projected onto our home islands and really reminding us of our voyaging traditions as island people and how through those we really relate to the ocean as a pathway of connection and mobility. Um, I also drawn scholars like Nolani Goodier-Kaopua, who's a Kanaka Maoli or Native Hawaiian scholar and encourages us to ask how our research can nurture reciprocal relationships and catalyze positive change. And also folks like Kim TallBear, um, I added this quote from the Bukdal Symposium that was actually hosted by NCSU when she gave an amazing talk. And she says that all peoples do science and all science is cultural. And so I think this is important for um, one, remembering that indigenous knowledges are, in fact, deeply scientific and that any type of scientific practice embeds particular value systems and reflects particular cultural norms that we ought to sort of pay attention to. Okay, so now I you know a bit more about who I am, how I come to the work that I do. Um, I want to tell you how I got interested in the genetic engineering space. And so this story uh, starts at UC San Diego, where I was a graduate student in the Department of Communication. And while at UC San Diego, I witnessed this really rapid growth of infrastructure to support the development of genetic engineering technologies in the lab. And alongside that, the cultivation of spaces meant to sort of prompt interdisciplinary dialogue about the ethical implications of those technologies, right? So we have spaces like um, the Institute for Practical Ethics, the Tata Institute for Genetics and Society, active genetics and others. And so around 2018, I was really thinking a lot about the challenges of doing good participatory community engaged research in science. And I noticed this was sort of emerging as a hot topic in the genetic engineering space. So I was drawn to these conversations. And this is where I began to learn about gene drive. And so uh, gene drives are techniques of genetic engineering that work by pushing or driving genetic alterations through populations of sexually reproducing organisms. And using advancements in genome engineering like CRISPR-Cas9, scientists have developed gene drives capable of circumventing normal patterns of inheritance. So consider the example of mosquitoes, which are a popular target of genetic modification, including gene drive. Uh, Let's say you have a mosquito with a genetic modification that's represented in the blue on the slide, and it mates with a wild type, the gray. Under typical Mendelian inheritance, right, think Punnett squares, Mendel and his peas, we know the offspring have some um, 50% odds of inheriting a modification from their parents, right? But with gene drive, the modification is spread instead through offspring at a rate very near to 100%. This works through a variety of different mechanisms I won't get into right now. Um, But what this means is that with particular kinds of gene drive, it may be possible to replace entire populations of wild uh, organisms with the genetically altered versions. Again, something not possible under typical patterns of inheritance. And so this is a pretty exciting breakthrough in gene engineering, and there are a variety of applications for this technology across sectors. And so most of the examples I have on this slide are of gene drives that would uh, spread modifications to um, cause a decline or eradication of particular species. Again, these also work through a variety of mechanisms. It could be, you know, spreading mutations that block female reproduction, others that spread sterility, others yet that bias the sex of offspring to crash the population. And so for example, Gene drives could be used to target mosquitoes that spread disease to humans like malaria and zika in sort of public health applications. In agriculture, gene drive could be used to target pests that spread crop disease. In conservation, gene drive could be used for targeting invasive species like rodents and mosquitoes. And in Hawaii where much of my work was focused for my dissertation, there's interest in gene drive for suppressing or eradicating the *Culex quinquefasciatus* mosquito that transmits avian malaria to endangered native birds. And in a different kind of example, there's some interest in gene drive for engineering more resilient coral reefs, for example, to be able to withstand warming and acidifying oceans. I also want to mention some of the top funders of gene drive research. Um, so this work kind of takes place around the globe with the support a variety of different sectors and funders. Most significant investors in gene drive research have been the uh, Mumbai-based Tata Trust, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, and the U.S. Military Agency, DARPA, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. Each has invested between 70 and $100 million in a gene drive research. And these numbers may even be a little bit outdated at this point. And these, this um, funding has supported a variety of gene drive projects for For example, combating malaria, controlling invasive rodents, and mosquito-borne disease. And DARPA has also funded research on how to control, counter, and reverse the effects of gene drive. And while I was at UCSD, the institution received funds from each of these sources. And so to date, no gene drive-carrying organism has been released outside the laboratory. Uh, This is in part because the science is still developing in this field and also because there's a variety of ethical issues that need to be worked out. So these include uh, uncertainty about downstream impacts on ecosystems, also the need for adequate regulatory frameworks to guide their use. And in this vein, there's a lot of talk about transboundary issues, right? A gene drive-carrying organism won't stop at our sort of political, uh, arbitrary political boundaries. So how do you, you know, negotiate governance across neighboring nations? There is also um, questions about whether gene drive could be weaponized. um, If it can be used to disrupt disease transmission, could it theoretically be used to uh, intentionally spread it? There's also wide consensus in the field that some level of public acceptance should precede the release of gene drives. And these considerations are all further intensified by the fact that some gene drives are designed to self-propagate. So if a few organisms were to escape or be released, you could see potentially global changes to that population of organisms. And this is where islands come into the story. And so a frequent recommendation across the gene drive literature is that isolated islands make suitable trial sites for the first outdoor releases of gene drives. And so you have major reports like the World Health Organization's guidance framework on genetically modified mosquitoes, and uh, the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine's widely cited gene drives on the horizon report, uh, making these recommendations explicitly, right? So from WHO islands as ideal testing locations, um, recommending geographical isolation of the site, so there's negligible chance of impact outside the trial area. And from NASEM, islands constitute an ideal geographically isolated contained setting, physically limiting the dispersal of organisms. And so the regularity with which this presumption circulated in literature and in the conversation about gene drive left me feeling uneasy as framings of islands as isolated and therefore amenable to experimentation have had lasting impacts on islands and the people who call them home. In fact, views of islands as remote and isolated were the basis of justification for the hundreds of nuclear explosions conducted in Oceania by American, British, and French governments from 1945 into the 1990s. And so I added a circle on this map from Gens and colleagues of nuclear explosions since 1945 so that you can see the region of Oceania. And while people are largely familiar with the nuclear histories of places like Hiroshima, Fukushima and Chernobyl, far fewer people tend to be aware of the nuclear histories of places like the Marshall Islands or of French Polynesia. For example, the most powerful atmospheric test ever conducted by the United States was in the Marshall Islands and was estimated to have been 1000 times the force of Hiroshima. And it's important to note um, that islanders in these regions like didn't properly consent to this experimentation in their home islands or on their bodies when they became unwitting test subjects in various radiation studies, right? And today, Marshallese and Maui peoples continue to fight for just compensation for the environmental degradation, the transgenerational health impacts, and the displacement that they continue to face as a result of nuclear testing on their home islands. Now, thinking back to gene drive, maybe we can be encouraged that this kind of experimentation slated to first take place on islands is attached to a conversation that really emphasizes public engagement, right? And even explicitly calls for free, prior, informed consent of uh, and engagement of indigenous peoples and knowledges. But of course, this still begs the question of how this will all look in practice. And this is the point from which my dissertation project uh, really took shape. And so for my dissertation, I had two pathways to this study. Uh, First was going to the texts that circulate claims about islands as ideal test sites, sort of asking where these claims come from and how, if at all, they're backed by evidence. And then second was ethnographic research to understand how engagement is playing out in practice on islands where gene drive is being explored as a potential conservation strategy, uh, and also how Native Hawaiians wish to be engaged in decisions around gene drive in their islands. And so, in the interest of time, I'm going to really just scratch the surface of both parts of this work, just give you a taste of uh, kind of what I did, what I found, and frame just really some high level takeaways. Okay, and I'll start with the document analysis. So, um, for this part of the work, I took a qualitative approach informed by grounded theory and situational analysis, and I began with a sample of five documents. So, this included the two longer form guidance frameworks I mentioned from WHO and NASM. Also the entire report from NCSU's workshop on gene drive for island biodiversity, which many of you in this seminar will likely have participated in um, or be aware of. And then also two papers from the International Union for Conservation of Nature, IUCN's Island Invasive uh, Conference Proceedings. And so quickly in this reading, I learned that uh, the literature recommends gene drive development follow a stepwise or phased approach moving from highly contained lab settings, as you can see on uh, the left with phase one, toward more open settings. And my investigation really focused in on phases one and two. So lab studies, lab population cages, and phase two, uh, physically confined trials. And so I began with initial reading of each document to locate the discussions on islands as field sites then analyze those sections inductively, identifying trends and themes in the data. I uh, generated an initial set of 10 codes, then grouped those codes into categories to capture the substantive themes in the data. These themes were biosafety, containment, and confinement. And so my analysis was really trying to just pay close attention to how islands were figured in relationship to these concepts. And so as I familiarized myself, With the conversation on islands and gene drives through these texts, I expanded my data set to also include three additional texts that were referenced frequently in this initial set. And they were texts that were focusing on protocols to safeguard experiments uh, with genetically modified organisms, including gene drives. And, And what this did was allow me to kind of gain greater insight into the material practices and protocols through which biosafety confinement and containment are actually operationalized. And so what I found is that containment generally refers to the laboratory setting and is thoroughly detailed as a process achieved and maintained through material infrastructure and through stringent protocol, right? You have layers of containment through physical structures, you have physical containers inside other containers, you have all kinds of specific policies and procedures in place to manage the movement of humans and non-humans through the laboratory space. Alternatively, confinement, which is the term generally used to talk about trials on islands, is mostly presented as a natural or self-evident quality of island geographies, right? The idea being that as research progresses, islands themselves will facilitate biosafety, absent the built structure of the laboratory. And so overall, in this sample literature, I found far less operationalization of how confinement will be ensured in island settings. So despite those multiple statements from NASM uh, that islands are ideal geographically isolated settings for these trials, very little evidence is offered to support this claim or really elaborate on why islands are suitable geographies for gene drive trials. The WHO document operationalizes confinement somewhat, uh, though this conversation was more framed in connection to challenges of sort of confining test and control groups so that you don't have uh, contamination of data with the integration of wild type mosquitoes. And so the question for me is is like, how isolated is isolated enough, right? And the only evidence really mobilized to this end by WHO was in reference to a 1997 study on mosquito dispersal that says two kilometers will probably be sufficient to confine organisms modified with self-limiting organisms and that organisms with other types of drives will simply require greater distances of separation. And so this two kilometer figure comes from data that I think is sort of typically taken as common knowledge today, suggesting that mosquitoes are capable of flying only very short distances, typically a few meters, and in rare cases up to a few kilometers. But as we know, and indeed as that 1997 study does acknowledge, mosquito dispersal can be facilitated over longer distances via winds and much longer distances yet via human-assisted transportation, such as ships or planes. Indeed, the arrival of mosquitoes to places like Hawaii, where they are not native, occurred uh, likely via whaling ships, believed to have brought the Culex mosquitoes and later the Aedes aegypti mosquitoes to Hawaii throughout the 19th century. And so taking all of this together, I argue that proposals to test gene drives on islands reflect these entrenched associations of island geographies with isolation, and that all of this rhetorical emphasis on safety and security really obscures the degree to which these proposals actually prescribe that risk be displaced onto island geographies. Something else I found fascinating in the document analysis was the use of a particular set of imaginative Practices and expert convenings about gene drives on islands. So uh, for example, at the uh, NC State workshop, again, which many of you will be familiar with, um, this event convened a variety of experts across natural and social sciences and policy to discuss gene drives for rodent eradication on islands. And participants were asked to engage in fictional island scenarios, uh, right? So if you can see on the slide in this figure, Different islands, again, fictional islands with different kinds of criteria, um, things like size, distance to mainland, presence of native mice, among others. And then participants were asked to vote on their top two preferences for an imagined first field trial location. And so I found this interesting because. Of course, I'd kind of set out to sort of read between the lines and these documents to understand how islands come to be imagined as field sites. And then here you have participants being quite literally asked to participate in this kind of imaginative activity. And of course, these discursive and imaginative practices matter, right? And proposals to trial gene drives on islands don't only live in the imaginative realm. Uh, This is a screenshot from the UC Malaria Initiative, which is a partnership among different universities across the University of California, uh, working on gene drive for malaria. And so not a fictional scenario, but a preview of some of the actual processes being undertaken by this group to select trial islands, in this case, that can simulate conditions of the intended continental sites of open releases across several different African countries. And so in bringing these examples together, um, I also want to acknowledge that they're relating to islands in different ways and through diverse purposes. So I think there are differences in projects that are sort of seeking to use the island as a simulation for a continental endpoint versus projects that seek to intervene in issues that are sort of local and particular to islands. Um, That said, or at the same time, I think we can still invite critical attention to the ways that the language and logics of island isolation are nonetheless entrenched through these communicative patterns and activities, um, especially recalling that, of course, this view of islands as isolated is not universal, but a particular and situated viewpoint, right? And as Pacific Islanders, we have you know much longer traditions of understanding our islands as connected by, not isolated by the ocean. Okay, so this brings me now to my ethnographic work. A little bit of background on this. So my ethnographic research was um, focused on emerging community engagement practices in Hawaii, where again, gene drives being considered as one potential intervention for avian malaria. And I had three parts to this. So I did interviews with Kanaka Maoli about gene drive and endangered bird conservation. Um, Also observation of community engagement events attached to those conservation projects and interviews with organizers of those events. So folks from state and federal agencies and different conservation organizations. So I talked to Kanaka on Oahu and uh, the island of Moku Keawe or Big Island of Hawaii. Again, both places where gene drives and other approaches are being considered for uh, bird conservation. And I was really struck by how regularly these conversations shifted to the historic and continuing examples of violations to indigenous self-determination in Hawaii. So interviewees talked about the U.S. decades-long bombing of the island of Kolawe. They mentioned Exercise RIMPAC, which is the world's largest international maritime warfare exercise held every two years in Hawaii. And several brought up the 30 meter telescope, which is an extremely large telescope proposed for construction atop the sacred Mauna or Mauna Kea on the big island. And one interviewee mentioned University of Hawaii's researchers, uh, excuse me, University of Hawaii researchers proposals to genetically modify Kalo uh, back in the early 2000s. And so considering these responses, an early takeaway for me was that engagement really ought to Uh, consider and address the largely unresolved ways that science, militarism, and colonialism have worked together to obstruct Hawaiian self-determination. Interviewees also really framed and underscored the importance of their relations to land as ancestor. As one kupuna or elder described of the UH UHGM Kalo project, she said, our first Hawaiian was Haloa and came from the Kalo to genetically modify Kalo is a big issue. That's the kind of stuff I think about when I think about anything genetically modified. And another Kapuna or elder described of TMT, um, if we were to remove Lake Wai'au, which is a lake atop Mauna Kea, we could hear about it in song and in stories, but we wouldn't be able to experience it and it possesses something that we need in life. And so these examples remind us as Nolani Goodyear Kaopua has cogently stated, that the aina um, roughly translated to land or that that which feeds us the aina is not something but someone and so what does risk look like and how do the stakes change uh, when land is ancestor and so again looking at this i think you know these conversations frame the very insights that engagement must open up right uh, but in practice at my site engagement looked more like this I attended focus groups between conservation agencies and a market research firm. We sat in a client viewing room that looked something like this, right? So conservationists on one side, viewing local residents on the other of this one-way mirror. Uh, We see them, they can't see us sort of a thing. And we looked on as a facilitator, read a script that served a couple of purposes in my viewing. Uh, One is to gauge residents' knowledge of native and invasive species. Another was to poll residents on their preference among mosquito control strategies, uh, including gene drive, though interestingly enough, without ever actually saying gene drive and the session then closed with message testing in which the facilitator asked for feedback on mock commercial scripts and slogans about avian disease so it's kind of like which do you prefer save our birds or mosquito free forests and so i don't have time to talk about uh, in depth about my interviews with organizers of these events but um i can say more maybe in the q and a on how those ended up kind of revealing explicit commitment to strategic communication and marketing approaches to engagement. Also how they demonstrated views of anticipated opposition and activism as a barrier to scientific progress. And a few promising counterexamples from university scientists who were longing for more participatory approaches to engagement, um, but navigating a variety of institutional barriers uh, in in doing that. And so you can see from the few quotes I've highlighted on this slide, you know, explicit discussion of again strategic communication and also the leveraging of this kind of marketing language, right? You're your movable middle, it's difficult to work with. Activists, you go to the movable middle and you start laying the groundwork to kind of, you know, shape perception. Okay. So, how do I make sense of this all holistically? A high-level takeaway from this work is that The discussion around what constitutes safe and ethical gene drive research is really thoroughly framed by these concepts of containment and isolation, right? Uh, They're shaping imaginaries of what places are deemed most suitable for trials of the technology, and they're even shaping the way engagement is practiced. So despite calls for engagement to be this sort of democratic endeavor that really opens up dialogue and makes space for mutual learning the emergent practices at my site were effectively foreclosing opportunities to engage local and indigenous expertise or to build relationships. And so I read these strategic practices as sort of practices of containment in their own right. And as an alternative, I ask what might an oceanic approach to this field and work look like, right? What if we trade this obsession with containment and isolation for an embrace of connectivity? How might an oceanic approach reorient us toward our shared responsibilities to create healthier environments and to do this collaboratively across the expansive oceans that connect us? And so this is really my continued work today. uh, But to sort of paint the picture for you, an oceanic approach might foreground connectivity rather than isolation, uh, might value relationships and recognize the connectedness of ecosystems and on humans across ecosystems. It would also take an expansive approach to what constitutes valid expertise and engage history as a vital resource for navigating our shared environmental futures. And so um, the last thing I want to mention is that in this continued work, I'm really fortunate to be uh, taking it up in deeper investigation through a book project with my colleague and sort of a partner in Making Good Trouble, Dr. Natalie Kofler. And so, you know, we've through our collaborations, realize how gene drive really surfaces these important considerations for governance of all technologies and in particular emerging technologies. So um, we're really looking closely and critically at the history of U.S. environmental conservation, asking how it continues to embed particular values, systems, and hierarchies, and really limited approaches to governance in shaping decisions about emerging technologies uh, that impact our environment today. And so happy to say more about any of this in the Q&A and want to, again, say a big sign of Thank you to the organizers of this event and to everyone who's supported this work over the last several years. So thank you, and I'll look forward to your questions.
3: That was really great. Thank you so much, Riley. so as usual uh, if you would like to ask your question use the raise your hand function if you don't feel comfortable throw your question in the chat and i'll read it for you um okay so do we have i'll give people a minute to collect their thoughts but if anyone is ready to hop in with a question if not i'll start um so so i think it's really interesting um you talk about this oceanic approach And it's still dealing with land. So one of the big missing pieces to the narrative is that um, a lot of marine organisms, can you still hear me? I think I moved my, sorry, I moved my microphone, but um, are harder to contain by the nature of their dispersal. And that is like fish, for example, um, is not an organism that has traditionally, marine fish, have not traditionally been considered part of this gene drive. And I think part of that is because they're so much harder to contain. Um, And and so I think it's somewhat interesting that we're using islands for this containment narrative when the ocean itself is harder to control.
2: Mm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's a really great point. And I hadn't thought too much about why we're not yeah, why we're not seeing as much interest in the marine organisms. I mean, aside from maybe coral reef. Um, but yeah, I think, I think that raises a good question about why islands or why islands as like land masses surrounded by water get sort of taken up so readily in this conversation and actually looking into like the Nasom report and WHO, there is conversation and recommendation about other kinds of islands, right? Not just land masses surrounded by water, but there's other kinds of like climatic islands. Um, You can have like a micro environment inside of a different environment that's on a continent or on an island that can be an island, right? So I think there's also uh, interesting questions to grapple with around why is it that we're so readily looking in the gene drive conversation to one particular kind of island when there could be other ways of facilitating that containment that don't look that way as well.
4: Yeah, thanks.
2: Max, would you like to ask your question?
5: Yeah, uh, yeah. Thank you. That was uh, was very interesting. Um, I was really well. Mostly a comment. So, so I'm a well, I'm a developer of uh, insect strains for genetic biocontrol programs. So we developed gene drive and also male-only strains. Um, not mosquitoes. More agricultural pests. But um, you know the uh, the comment really the, the attraction of islands. This goes. This goes way back, well before gene drive came on the scene. Um, We go back to the history of genetic biocontrol. The first uh, test of the sterile insect technique was on the island of Curacao, sorry, in the Caribbean. Um, And I'm I'm Australian, although so lived in New Zealand for a long time. So Um, in Australia, they were trying to use genetic biocontrol for control of the sheep blowfly, and a lot of the initial trials failed, and they were they were held around Canberra, and they failed because, you know, there were so many flies moving into the area that was being treated that just confounded the results. And so the, they really only were able to get uh, decent data from their field trials when they moved to islands. So They moved to islands in Bass Strait where there was little movement. And, and the reason they did this was so that they had a chance of uh, evaluating if the trial was going to succeed. So the islands have been attractive, really, to minimise the chance of other, you know, insects moving into the area, and sort of, you know, causing the trial to fail. So this is long before people started talking about, um, you know, worries about gene drive and um, movement. There's, there's there's other reasons for doing trials in, in islands, and and you're quite right that it doesn't have to be an island out in the Pacific. Um, IAEA was testing sterile insect technique for the tsetse fly. And so the, they're famous for eradicating it from the island of Zanzibar. But they, they also tested it in parts of the Nile River where the the only area the tsetse was was along the Nile River Valley and surrounded by desert. So it was a different kind of island. Um, <clears throat> I'm just a little uh, curious. You know, the Culex mosquitoes in Hawaii, so we work a bit with Omar Akbari out of UC San Diego. And they're, they're, they're quite interested in a different approach rather than gene drive. Well, he's also working on gene drive, but they're, they're precision-guided SIT, which is releasing mosquitoes that are sterile. I just wonder if you came up in your work, whether you picked up whether that approach would be more acceptable than a gene drive.
2: Well, I think that is certainly a question for the Ma'o Hinui communities that um, Omar and others are, I think, working with out in French Polynesia. Um, but I'll say, I, so I can't speak to that because that's not where my work was focused. But I can say that in Hawaii, there, you know, the the kind of something that's interesting to me was in talking to scientists and conservationists. And as Katie Barnhell dilling has kind of described it before, too, like this fear of fear, like phobia of phobia, right? Like nervousness about the opposition from the public and how that could stand in the way of moving the technology to the field. And what I found in actually talking to people was less of a sort of outright opposition to say genetic modification or even gene drive and definitely a shared interest in doing something about mosquitoes and like doing something for the birds, which are you know critically endangered and are really culturally important But what the opposition was more on response to was, again, bad governance, bad public engagement, lack of transparency. So I just like to kind of nuance the conversation a little to say we can't just assume people are going to sort of outright be afraid of these technologies. Often, um, again, in my sight, I saw less of an express fear or opposition to the tech itself and more of just very... I would say understandable concern about the decision-making processes uh, that would be taken up to bring them to the field.
5: Yeah, I understand.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Max. I think Nolan maybe is next. Yeah.
6: Yeah, Thanks, Jen. Um, and thanks Riley for sharing the work. I think it's amazing. And I just want to say thank you for being here. Um, so I, maybe we can continue that conversation a little bit. I have been um, studying sort of like, well, I, so I'm from communication and there's a word we use called meta discourse, which is like communication about communication. And I, I was really interested in the way um, that you talked about, or if I, I wish you could say more maybe on the sort of consequences or practical implications of framing engagement in terms of acceptance so that's a you know it's often in like big technical reports or in the sort of like scientific um sphere we often think hear about engagement being framed as like a matter of acceptance and i'm wondering if if there are other ways to think about engagement outside of that and and um you know maybe what some consequences of the acceptance frame has thanks
2: Yeah. Thank you, Nolan. That's a really great question. And I think that is kind of a like unspoken subtext of a lot of these projects that I have looked at is that you are ultimately, at least in this kind of strategic or marketing approach, you're gauging the knowledge or even the lack of knowledge around native invasive species issues in this place. And then you're launching an educational campaign to kind of fill those gaps. You're, you know, um, Anticipating misinformation that gets circulated about the development of these technologies and kind of trying to head it off or, right, all all unspoken um, part of a project to hopefully cultivate acceptance or just, um, yeah, head off potential opposition. And so I think there's a lot already assumed and kind of pre- given when you come to the table, especially at a market research firm, right, uh, with that kind of a framing to the work. So I think I'm I'm trained more in like community-based participatory research as an approach to engagement. And that's a really different model in that you have a different kind of point of entry where you're building a relationship with a partner community in a research project. You're shaping a research question together, deciding the methods and the potential you know, solution together. And that just looks really different than already coming to a community saying, okay, we know that you have X, Y, or Z problem and then gene drive or other genetic modification could be a way to solve it. So I think a more participatory approach to engagement would be one that starts um, with a relationship and a shared goal, shared understanding about an issue, um, environmental, public health, or otherwise, and then looks at a much wider menu of potential options Right. And, you know, even co-creates or co-designs solutions with a community like I'm all about co-design of tech with communities. I think that's where um, some of our most innovative ideas for environmental conservation, for example, come from is like working with folks who are on the ground in these places and have long relationships and, you know, deep knowledges of the environments that they're stewarding. So. So, yeah, I think that's something I think a lot about in the gene drive space is just what does it mean to start an engagement when you already have decided the problem, you've already decided the solution to that problem in, you know, contrast to participatory approaches of engagement we see coming out of like uh, social sciences and education that have a really different kind of point of entry.
6: Thank you.
3: Thank you. Okay. I think Ashton had her hand up. Would you like to ask your question? Yeah. um, Thank you so much for this, Riley. This is incredible. Um, Mine is, I'll keep it quick, which is um, thinking about this oceanic approach to governance and particularly thinking back to your points about um, the nuclear testing case, which is the perfect parallel here. Um, What would an oceanic approach to consent look like? you know, given that there was this lack of consent um, during the nuclear testing era?
2: Mm. That is a really good question. And consent is even itself can be such like a fraught framework or way into some of these questions too. So I'll raise that. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I'm not sure. I think that like I really appreciate the leveraging in this conversation of like free prior informed consent to acknowledge like, you know, especially the inherent rights of indigenous peoples and local groups to self-determine the uses of their lands and resources. So that is like a language that I bring in. Um, but I guess thinking about oceanic approaches to consent or something like consent or authorization, I think there would need to be a lot more critical understanding of like responsibilities across space and history. And so I think, you know, working at a place for many years, as I did at UC San Diego, I was always really struck by like, um, again, in my own experience, kind of like the lack of conversation or just critical analysis of like all of these, I don't know, all of these systems of power kind of at play. Right, it's like we had projects funded by DARPA, but we're not talking about like what it means, like what the history of militia- militarism means in these specific islands, right? So, just I think part of the like consent or decision making needs to just more readily like reckon with some of these unresolved histories, like I talked about, um, and I think there needs to be just a, a whole different like a reorientation to what responsibility and what relationship is like across these like vast geographic distances. Right. Um, I think there's kind of something of a difference of, you know, scientists who I met and worked with in Hawaii who are like, well, I also like, I live in on this Island and I'm developing a technology for intervention into an issue, like in a place where I would also like live some of the consequences of right. The ways the ecosystem is impacted versus sitting in a conference room or a lab in UCSD and, thinking about putting a technology on an island you've never been to or don't have any relationship to so I'm kind of thinking out loud but I think that there's something in an oceanic approach to decision making to shared responsibilities around consent that just like digs deeper into some of these um, power imbalances across these geographies and across um yeah these you know relationships that are imbued with different kinds of access to resources and things like this
3: yeah totally thank you
2: Session. I'll be continuing to think about that one for sure. <laughs> David,
3: would you like to ask your question?
4: Sure. Thank you. Uh, I found your uh, talk extremely interesting and uh, appreciate uh, what you had to say about this. And I think it's actually pretty important overall for what we're uh, for, not just this discussion, but many other um, parallel discussions. But one comment that you made that struck me and it's more of a um, ecological question, is Mm -hmm. that uh, you talked about how uh, the peoples you were interviewing saw the ocean as a connecting process rather than as an isolating process. And I'd like you to expand on that a little bit, but in the context of, you know, if if we look at some of the history of ecology, uh, we have the history of island biogeography, which was oriented primarily at first to actual islands. And then it became sort of like, okay, well, we can count mountaintops if they were islands. And uh, then it's like, well, we can, uh, ultimately we can look at isolated um, parks as islands or isolated remnants as islands. And so this whole idea of starting with an island without really thinking through what it means, I think very readily extends to these um, metaphorical islands that occur all over the continents. And so that's why I'm kind of interested in your thoughts about when people said that the ocean connects them rather than isolates them. I think that's a pretty important concept to try to unpack from an ecological perspective. Mm. Thank you.
2: Thank you, David. I really appreciate those comments. Um yeah, so first on the on the point of the ocean as a connector, I mean, I think this has everything to do with these long, you know, millennia-long histories of using the ocean as a pathway for mobility, right? Like as I said, these expert voyaging practices, the the ocean has been something that connected people for thousands of years and allowed Pacific Islanders to settle their home islands to begin with, right? And then to engage in trade and conflict and travel across archipelagos and across islands. So I think that kind of framework of the ocean as a connector has everything to do with that deep kind of knowledge about you know, setting out onto open ocean, reading the stars, reading the ocean waves and the birds that come across um, to be able to expertly navigate across that expansive space, right? So I think it's like a, an ethical and epistemological kind of connection and framework, right? To understand the ocean as a connector. The ocean is also a really important ancestor and a, and a birthplace for our peoples, right? Our islands were literally born out of the ocean from different tectonic plate activities and volcanic activities. And our islands, in fact, are still growing, right? If you read um, "Our Sea of Islands, the place where he was standing when he kind of was struck by this inspiration to write about this alternative or indigenous framing of islands as connected by the ocean was um, at Kilauea um, at the volcano on the big island of Hawaii when he saw Pele or the volcano goddess like spilling out lava and, and continuing to build the islands, right? So that's really just reanimating the ocean and the islands as dynamic, as alive, right? And as our ancestors. And so I think that's that's my short piece on the connectivity piece. I also really appreciate you bringing up the island biogeography point, um, because I think there's really interesting ways in which some of like Darwin's theories of natural selection and others have been kind of um, appropriated within some of those early conversations and then extracted out of island biogeography into other fields like anthropology, right? you get all kinds of interesting conversations and like Margaret Mead era anthropology and her contemporaries talking about how you can study human cultures on islands as if they're in these sort of isolated Petri dishes to use some of the language that comes out of that uh, literature, right? So you see these like extrapolations that we know are oversimplified and have since been kind of, you know, revisited critically within those disciplines. But I really appreciate you bringing up um the kind of development in that field to look at islands as many different kinds of geographies not just the landmass surrounded by the by the ocean and so i think that's something that in the gene drive space um i would love to learn more about what kinds of work people are doing to think about trialing on on different kinds of geographic islands as well thank you
0: Okay, Dalton,
3: would you like to uh, unmute yourself and ask your question?
7: Yes, thank you very much. Um, this was an excellent, excellent talk. I particularly appreciate the um, emphasis on how biosafety and containment principles often obscure very political decisions about which lives are worth saving and which are not. Um, so I will... Um, the first bullet of your last
4: slide,
7: um, hoping you could say maybe a bit more about how the oceanic approach, um, operationalizes connectivity as an important principle for governing gene drives. Um, because so much of institution, so many, um, biosimally ideas of isolation and control over organisms and their genetic material. Um, so when, you first explained when you first explained those ideas in the slide, it hit me initially that the principle of connectivity, um, how could this principle of connectivity reconfigure Western notions of biosafety? Um, so yeah just your thoughts on that would be um, greatly appreciated. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Dalton. That's a great question. And I feel like I'm only yet scratching the surface of like what biosafety and biosecurity is kind of as a field and a set of responsibilities that like attracts all these different actors, right? I think there's like so much to look into in terms of like the military as a player, the US military as a player, and some of these um, responsibilities as well. Also like conservation agencies, right? I think containment and control frames so deeply what it is that these different organizations institutions agencies are sort of um tasked with doing that's such a big part of my conversation with people in Hawaii who are part of different you know federal and state conservation agencies it's like we our job is to control invasive species to contain the risk and mitigate the threat so it's like mm-hmm. the, it's not only a conceptual framework but it's just like so deeply um framing yeah, all of the the scientific questions and uh, strategies that get taken to kind of managing uh, humans and non-humans across these spaces. So I think that there's like a lot of kind of unpacking and historicizing to do uh, for me in future work to understand like where those idea, like the, yeah, historic points at which these ideas of containment kind of are are emerging from. And so, yeah, I think it's a big question and I'm, I don't think I have an answer yet about how we reframe that in terms of connectivity when you have all of these big players really invested in in this approach. So I appreciate you raising that um, and giving me a chance to think out loud about it a bit. And it's something I'm definitely going to uh, continue to be grappling with in this in this work.
7: Great. Thank you so much. Very excited about your book project.
2: Thank you. OK, Asa.
6: Hey uh thank you i really enjoyed hearing your perspective and and everything you've said has been really interesting um i as i often do in these talks i'm kind of wondering about how we can move this out and whether you think that there can be or should be optimism for changing these conversations and like redistributing power or making sure that like more possibility space is open and is always open. Um, And also in terms of like other historical or geographic or topical contexts, whether you've seen more like mutual and and, um, reciprocal power sharing and responsibilities in, in other spaces.
2: Thank you for that question. Um, depends on the day, how much optimism I have around any of this, uh, no, but, but basically like this gave me a lot of optimism and the reception of this conversation. And like I said, the, the project that I get to work on with my colleague, um, especially because through that work, we're connecting with all kinds of folks, um, many of whom are situated in some of these Island communities that are doing amazing you know, community-led and grassroots work around conservation, around, um, you know, building a healthier environmental future. So I am really encouraged that there are people who've already been like living the kinds of philosophies that I'm talking about. Like nothing I'm saying is a new idea, right? I'm drawing so much inspiration on like, you know, ancestral knowledge about what it means to be from a, a place, from a kind of geography that is so connected, right? So it's kind of um, it's fun for me to get to really reground and reconnect in that because it might seem at times like a newer novel idea in some of this conversation because like the island isolation view is so kind of taken for granted and pervasive, but I feel like I'm in such good company when I look to the fields that I've mentioned, like native Pacific cultural studies, like indigenous studies. Um, I'm really inspired by the work Kim TallBear is leading Um, on indigenous science studies. I think that that is such a great example of, you know, rigorous scientific research that's really grounded in indigenous people's responsibilities as stewards of their environments. And um, I think a lot of those people are living these kinds of participatory approaches to engagement all the time. So yeah, check out some of those projects. And really also, I am encouraged in my postdoc at the Native Nations Institute uh, because Native Native Nation building and Indigenous governance is really the foundation and the shared, you know, purpose around which we're all convening. And that's really different than other kinds of projects I've been on where Indigenous self-determination has been like the footnote, <laughs> you know. So, so yeah, I, I think I have a lot of optimism and thanks for giving me some space to reflect on it.
6: <laughs> thank you.
2: Yeah, thank you. Um, I think that that actually
3: is a great... <laughs> place to end uh, not only the colloquium for today, but the cl- colloquium series for this semester. So if everyone would help me thank Riley for a really interesting uh, presentation and a great discussion, uh, thank you so much. Uh, there are phrases in the comments that you should read. Um, there's also a link in the comment, Dawn um, posted a link in the comment to Riley's uh, work so that you can read more about um, other stuff she's involved in. And I just want to remind everyone that this is the last uh, colloquium for the semester. We will be back in early January uh, with our traditional meet and greet lunch. Um, And then uh, we have a full lineup for the semester already. It's going to be really great. So watch your emails for announcements and details um, coming up for next semester. Okay, thank you, everyone. Have a great day.
2: Thank you. Take care.